0: Welcome to Legally Scaling, the podcast for entrepreneurs and tech enthusiasts seeking insights into the common legal challenges faced by scaling businesses. This podcast is brought to you by Ignition Law, a leading law firm for startups, scale-ups and entrepreneurs. Today, we're joined by Antonio Wedrill, co-founder and growth director at award-winning employee-owned e-commerce agency, Novos. Today, we're going to discuss Novos' journey from startup to e-commerce market leader With a focus on the various legal challenges experienced as the business scaled and how these were surmounted antonio welcome thank you hello jake to start off with i'd love to understand a bit more about how novos was founded tell me about your journey so
1: i'll start from the beginning so my co-founder and i he hired me in my first ever role out of university many years ago Um, so he was my line manager we stayed in touch as mates over the years and then we were both in-house at the time as well so i was working for a men's magazine uh he was working for made.com dot com. Um we basically both were hiring for SEO agencies at the time. We both experienced the exact same sort of pitches. Um nothing felt different. It was all the same. Um so we just thought look, there's a big gap here for an SEO agency to shake things up. It was kind of run by like a we called it like the dinosaurs. Like they'd been around for 20 years, SEO agencies and we had nothing new or fresh for a while. So we just said let's do it. And then we just thought let's just focus on e-commerce and retail brands because that was a niche that needed a lot of love and attention and to reduce the investment in paid. So that's ultimately how Novos came about.
0: And at this point, had either of you had any personal experience with SEO and, and digital marketing or was that, you know, was that part of your initial roles? It was, yeah.
1: So we both worked for an SEO agency together. Uh, Sam was then head of SEO at made.com. My role was a bit more generic as head of digital marketing at the, at the magazine. So it kind of encompassed all the different channels but we both had come from an SEO background. So we we knew what good looked like, I guess, and also what bad looked like. Um, so kind of like a good time for us to either, I think we're both at a point where we'd either probably progress through our own careers in some way. So we'd probably niche down into something else, or we just spotted this opportunity and just said, let's just do it, let's start as a side hustle. Let's see if there's demand there and then grow from
0: there. Amazing, I mean, I guess a lot of people notice some problem that needs solving usually from personal experience and they work in the area and they think, wouldn't it be great to to do this better? But so few people actually take that step. So when you guys were together and you decided we're going to build a better version of, of what we've been looking for ourselves, what did you then do at that point? How did you make this a reality? Did you just instantly quit your jobs and jump into the abyss of of being a founder? Or, or what were those early steps? So I did, he
1: didn't. Um, so he was in the process of getting a mortgage. So <laughs> he kind of had to stay in full time employment, whereas I had nothing to lose at the time. So I was like, let's just do it. I wasn't very happy at my job. I just felt like this was a perfect time to to just do it. And we. I felt like it needed full focus for a bit, and if it didn't work after three months, I'll find another job. So yeah, I dived into it. I handed in my notice pretty much the next day after we signed our first client, and then we just grew it from there really. so then until from March of 2018 until December, I was full-time at Novos. Sam was still doing it sort of side hustles part time. He then came into it full-time at the end of, at the end of 2018, which is when we kind of started to double
0: down. sounded like you were signing up clients from the get-go, which I guess validated your idea of, of what was needed in the market is instantly proving product market fit. But I guess what comes with that sort of instantly being client-facing compared to spending, you know, a year trying to raise funding and, you know, other ways of starting businesses, it, it means you've got to get things right to some extent from the get-go because you have those professional relationships to rely upon. So with that in mind, how did you approach legals at the very beginning? I know it's not the most fun thing from a founder's point of view when you're, you're starting this new creative enterprise, but, but what did you guys do in that respect?
1: Well, I'll be completely honest, we didn't do much. So I'm in a, a unique position where my sister and my brother-in-law are both lawyers. So my sister's an employment law partner, at a large law firm in the UK. And then he, my brother-in-law at the time, he also worked for a large law firm in the senior role. So I was able to get unofficial, off the record, something very clearly I couldn't say that they gave me advice, but just I could ask them, I'm planning to do this. Can you point me in the right direction? So we we kind of had that there, which was quite a nice sounding board. And then just naturally, just I guess I just use search engines because when you're at the time, you're so strapped for cash, you, you can't afford to pay for a, a lawyer or a legal fee. So we kind of just did everything that we needed to ourselves. We had sort of like a bookkeeper at the time that kind of helped us with more of like the incorporation side of it. Um, so at at the start it was it was very bare I'd say
0: I mean I'm sure that's that's pretty common and when I I built businesses earlier on in my career and in the very early days a lot of googling a lot of government forms trying to figure out how much I how much I could do by myself and it's always difficult trying to figure out like, what is the point when I need to bring someone else in it's the same with an accountant I guess in the very early days as well like when when will they add value and when yeah. can you justify the the expense but great that you had the opportunity to have those those sounding boards I guess. So, so you've signed your first client, you've jumped off into the abyss, your, your co-founder is, is, is close to be following you. What do you think triggered the business's initial growth?
1: I don't know. Ultimately, we worked really hard for it, firstly. So I've been told to not negate our experiences, but at the same time, a bit of luck, like right place, right time, maybe. But I think we just had the right contacts. We had a good network already. So we knew people who knew people who knew people. And I think that really helped us just because we could say, look, we're these passionate new entrepreneurs. This is our idea. We want to change the industry. We want to change the game. Do you know anyone that could be of interest? It's amazing how helpful people want to be in those kind of moments because they can see the passion. So people just introduce us. And even if nothing came of it, it was good to know someone. The amount of meetings that we were taking at the time, like we were constantly back to back in calls, in meetings, just hoping that someone would latch onto it. And I think because of that, because we managed to build such a network of referrals, essentially, that was able to sort of kickstart our growth so that really helped us because people would say i can't work with you at the moment but i know dave down who is currently at this brand they're looking for something and ultimately at the start as well because we were just tiny it was just the two of us initially for a good year we were able to charge very low rates so we were able to just go and say it's quite a small retainer but you get these this experience in seo um, and then case studies, essentially, as soon as we were able to build two to three case studies from the brands we were working with, that just took our pitch to a whole new level. So I think just a combination of factors over a period of a few months. And then once that kind of all clicked into place, we were able to really just push hard on getting people interested in what we're doing.
0: On a related note, I, I know you said at the beginning you you were attending pitches delivered by the, the kind of dinosaurs back in the day that weren't doing it well. And I'm sure those pitches were in the back of your mind when suddenly you were in that position. but doing it in a a modern day context and in a refreshing way. So when it came to your pitches, how did you try to differentiate Novos? And what is your value proposition? What makes it so different?
1: Well, first thing was the whole e-commerce retail angle. So historically, SEO agencies would take on whatever client that they could, because that's just the industry that it is. So it, it was always like either fintech or big B2B brands, like they have money, they have cash to spend, whereas retailers don't. So I think naturally there wasn't really a niche for retail, e-commerce, SEO. So we were already a niche within just doing SEO. And then we'd went niche of a niche within e-commerce and retail. So that I think was like our first USP because we could just go into it and say, we've got experience. This is all we do. Trust us. And then I think just in general, just the way that we pitched, like we still do it now, like after multiple years, it's very kind of honest, laid back, transparent. I've never wanted to be overly salesy because I just don't think that that works and people can see straight through that especially since COVID, we're all remote. You don't really have body language cues. There's so many things that people are lacking, so they go off of what you're saying. We've always said, let's just try and keep things as chilled as possible. And if this person isn't right for us, we'll tell them. Or if we don't think we're right for them, we'll tell them. That was right at the start when we didn't have any money. We, we were the same. We weren't desperate. And I think that was just our approach we wanted to go into was, we know we're good at this one thing, which is new. It's, it's, it's innovative within the industry. But secondly, we're going to go into this like, we can help you and we want to help you rather than we just want your money. So I think it was just like a refreshing approach to just be like being a human level, I guess, with them. And I think that combination really helped us to win those pitches when we were tiny. We had nothing to prove ourselves with. We were very small in terms of retainer size, which is probably already a red flag to big retail businesses. But they trusted us. So,
0: yeah, I think that really helped us. I think that really resonates. It's a very similar ethos to ignition law. The number of times I find myself, and I know my colleagues are saying, saying to clients, "Actually, you, you just don't need this, or it's really not worth you you spending that at this point. Maybe at this point in the future." And you can see the total amount of shock on people's faces because they're so used to getting that hard sell all the time. But actually, although you might lose out on a bit of work in the short term, it builds goodwill, which is. Invaluable, and, and when that prospective client gets to the right size or, or the right stage, you end up having a much better relationship. Because when you say, hey, "Hey, you actually do need this," or "This is a very specific risk; we would strongly recommend you you plug," or I guess in your case, saying, "This is something that I really think would make a difference." Now, they're more likely to trust you. Um, and nowadays, we're also used to the hard sell, just because you're constantly getting messaged on LinkedIn and cold emails, and, and God knows what else. See, so, yeah, I, I really like the idea of that approach. I mean, on that niche, it makes it makes sense. But have you ever tempted to break out of the niche because you then start to think of the other growth opportunities? Or are you more likely to double down on it because you are leaders in that area of the market?
1: I mean, people have always said to us like, look, there's more money in this. And And don't get me wrong, we've taken on the odd client here and there that we still have that wouldn't fall into necessarily the bracket of e-commerce retail because we just love the brand or we think there's so much opportunity for them and stuff like that. But in terms of actually like promotional or marketing or really going out there for it, we've just said, let's just double down on return e commerce because it's a big enough market. there's money there, there's brands there, we want to love the brands that we're working with and the the ultimate goal gets to like if we do ever reach a point where We feel like we've maximized what we can do in the UK, which would be an absolute luxury if we ever get to that point. Then we've got the whole world we can conquer. So there's enough retail brands in the US and in Europe and in Australia and APAC. So I think yeah, for us, it was never really a question of let's branch out to other niches or industries or even let's add another channel. I think we've always said let's stick to what we're really good at we know that will pay dividends in the future. Even if we're limiting ourselves to a slightly smaller market, that market is still huge and we don't need to be greedy. So that's kind of always been our, our thoughts, really.
0: Amazing. And as things started to go really well and you started to grow into a, a, throughout another stage of your business life cycle, at that point, did you encounter any new legal hurdles, accounting hurdles? like From the, the boring admin side, what started to change as you became, I guess, a, a proper growing, scaling business?
1: Uh, I think naturally we got to a point where like contracts became a lot more of a thing so we already had contracts that we created ourselves with a template but then we got more and more contractual questions with the bigger retainers and brands that we were working with we were hiring obviously we grew the team so naturally there were more sort of like HR related questions and more employment contract related concerns so that I think like it was those kinds of issues I guess anything to do with like compliance we kind of had well in hand with accountants and we've always had that covered but it was the legal side of it where i realized i can't keep googling this we can't keep relying on our own internal resources for this we need to we need to improve and i think the first trigger point for that i think they both came at the same time was that there was a couple of employment related questions and then our contracts needed a full overhaul and we just said we can't do this ourselves
0: Okay, and is that where Ignition then suddenly entered the fray? I mean, how, how did you how did you come across Ignition? How did you even kick off that process, you know, bringing in formal legal advice fr- from a smaller business perspective for the first time? I think that's something that, that a lot of our listeners might be thinking if they are at the earlier stage, you know, when do we do it? Which I think you, you've started to answer, but also how do we go about it?
1: Yeah, so we came across Ignition because one of our, just naturally by the clients that we work with and probably the clients that you guys work with was one of our clients, the retailers used you. So we, we were on the other end of Ignition law. So we were trying to get a contract signed with the brand and Ignition were being a pain. And we were like, these guys are really good at what they do. And then I think it came about two months down the line, we kind of realized as a result of that experience, perhaps there is work that we need to do with our own contracts. And this is a good time for us to level this up, I think. So that's where we reached out to Ignition and said, this is what we're looking to do. Is this something you can help us with? And ever since then, we've obviously been a client of yours. So I think it's like it's one of those where sometimes it'll just come up at the right time. Sometimes you'll have an experience with a customer or an employee or a partner of yours, whoever it is, you might have an experience which triggers you to think this is a good time for us to explore this. I'd experience this with X brand or X company. Let's reach out to them and
0: see if they want to work with us. Biggest possible compliment that for a law firm, <laughs> you guys were against us, and we still decided we wanted to hire you. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I'm glad to glad to hear that you weren't you weren't put off. But um, yeah, it was, it was it was nice that you guys felt that way. So, okay, so you've got your compliance in order, you've got the law firm on board, you've got an increasing number of clients. You know, how looking back now, how has the business changed now that you're a, a national leader? It's changed in
1: in a few different ways. Obviously, we get more in, inbound inquiries, and more people want to work with us. So rather than now us having to hunt people to work with when you're small, we're now having to create like not necessarily waiting lists, but people are wanting to work with us more, which is amazing. We obviously became an employee owned company as well in early 2022. Um, so we established an employee ownership trust. Um, so we sold 90% of our shares so Sam and I to that trust. We kind of saw like the future of business, not just business in the UK, but of our own company the future really being in the hands of those that know the company the best and the ones that actually are on the day to day. So that for us was like the most sustainable solution rather than being bought out by a larger company. So I think again, becoming sort of like a larger, more recognizable national company that became, that was also something which once that happened, we knew internally things just had to change and mindset had to change culturally. We need to make sure that everyone's going in the same direction. And then also with COVID, I guess, a lot of more people now work from home. So we've still got our main base. So our place of work is the office in London. But we have people that come in like once a month, for example, depending on their distance. So I think we just had to adapt. And we are now technically a national employer. So we've got employees all across the UK. We have to make sure that we're adapting as much as we can for them while still getting the value out of them. So giving them the best equipment possible, making sure that, they're also culturally involved as much as they want to. And also we kind of need them to be. So I think it's just finding that balance. So there are a few changes we saw as we grew, but all, all good changes. But yeah, I think the big one will be if internationally something happens, that'll probably be the next big
0: hurdle for us. Again, picking up on real similarities here with with you know, how, how we run with, with Ignition, it's massive remote team you've got the core team as well the culture across everything is brilliant there are events and and whatever that you can do to bring bring people together and make people like me feel like they are a part of it I think that builds loyalty but you also have much more effective working relationships with people who you have met and socialised with and and get on with Um, I think a lot of what you were saying is, is almost a lesson of how to build a business the right way in in the century we're in aligning with people's expectations I'm hearing stories of much bigger firms now insisting that people come back into the office for four days a week and it's going back to that rigid way of working that people have so departed from in their own minds post COVID. Um, So yeah, it's super interesting.
1: Well, I think it's hard though, because I think people always have this picture of like an employer saying, come back to the office for the sake of it. And I think there's a lot of instances where that probably is the case, but also you've got this problem where perhaps mainly for us, because the demographic of like our team and who we work with naturally like younger So like we've got this whole, we've got like part of the company or a good chunk of it that are London based, that are eager to meet people, learn off of someone next to their shoulder. They just want to be out of their flat in London and they actually just want to work with others. Whereas then we've got the other side, which are more established, they've got kids, they live in the countryside that they don't want to come in because it costs a lot of money or they're just not really interested in the social side. So I think it's just finding that balance, which... I think the larger employers, I can see why it would be a struggle, but a lot of people just haven't really nailed it. So then people are going to two extremes. It's either we're going completely remote only or we need you in four or five days a week. And I think like our approach has just been, let's get people to set their own commitments, how often they're going to come in. We'll set our own. This is the minimum. Anything between that is up to you. And then just sort of monitoring that and seeing how people are feeling as a result of it. But I think it is hard for companies to get it right. And some people just go completely the wrong way about
0: it. Sure, I think like giving giving people the opportunity if they want it is a really good way of putting it. And I think it can be that mindset. I remember when I was when I was employed and I worked in big city law and I was working at three three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. I was resentful to to an extent because I had no choice in that. Now, when I'm working at three or four o'clock in the morning. Working self employed, running my own businesses, I don't have that same resentment because it's totally my fault and there is no one I can blame. So I'm in exactly the same circumstances. But because of that element of choice exists, I feel so much better about it. Now, if I go into the ignition office or I enjoy it because I'm thinking I'm here on my own accord and, and it makes a really big difference. So I, I really like your flexible approach there. I also think the fact that you are employee owned and, and so many of your shares ended up in that trust is, is pretty unique. You know, I think like. John Lewis were really well known for being a, an employee-owned company many many decades ago, and then it just stopped happening in that way, except for the very senior managers and founders, maybe. Um, so that's a very novel approach. And how how did that decision come about? It's it's huge,
1: and I think it's a real USP. I mean, for us, we we knew there had to be something to be done at some point in terms of like an exit, but I think we just didn't want to be bought out by a larger company. So we were really close. We got offers, and we were really close to being acquired. And then we just thought, like, why are we doing this? Like, we'll we'll be put on an earn out that we probably will never achieve. We'll just be under pressure. We've lost our baby ultimately in the business, and what every employee will just leave, um, and then the clients will leave as a result. So we're like, wait, what's the actual end point of this? So when we were then made aware of this because we went through an options process, so we introduced op- options for a few of our senior senior team, and then a while later afterwards, we were then made aware of this employee ownership uh, scheme and we thought let's explore it because I'd love to give more power to the team who ultimately <laughs> know the company so well but I just didn't understand it so as soon as we started digging more into it educating ourselves about it that was then when we just said this is this is the perfect process for us so this is this is ideal it secures the future I'm super passionate about it now as well employee ownership itself and I really think it's the future of of UK businesses so we just said let's let's do it let's go for it
0: Sounds like such a wonderful way to, to go about things. And what a shift going from potentially exiting to to that. I'm sure your employees feel all the more loyal for it. So I mean, the last last question on Novos, just in terms of maybe helping people to learn from, from your journey, mistakes made, anything like that. What would you do differently if you were founding the same business today?
1: I don't know, because the business probably wouldn't be the same if I founded it differently, right? I, I, I think it's a uh... I think it's a hard one. Perhaps I would have taken certain things maybe more seriously at the start, i.e. law, um, accountancy, all that stuff where you just think, I just need to make money first before I even think about this stuff. So perhaps I'd go at it more in like a logistical way, maybe, and really get like the support network around me as a founder earlier on. That's maybe something I would do differently. But apart from that, I think everything we've learned on the job, everything we've learned throughout the years, the mistakes we've made, whether that's through hiring or just the delivery of the work or whatever it is, it makes you better. And I, I definitely see that. And It sounds cliche, but I do actually see it in practice. Like if something doesn't go well, next time we actually do it so much better. So I don't think I would necessarily do anything differently, but perhaps being a wiser founder now, if I now founded a business tomorrow, I know the process now for actually incorporating a company for actually getting the right support network of lawyers, accountants, people that know their stuff that I'm not very passionate nor good at. I I definitely support myself with, with that probably a lot sooner.
0: I completely agree with you about learning from those early mistakes. I guess if something goes, if something is going well now or working well, what you've done in the past is the reason that you can recognize that it's working well and why it's working well. Because similarly, if someone set up a business and from day one just absolutely smashed SEO and then started working with you, they wouldn't necessarily appreciate what a difference your services are making. Whereas, if they they put it off, and I was I was guilty of that with my own businesses, thinking, "Ah, oh, SEO, it's just this abstract concept. I don't understand. I'll worry about it later." And then just ignored it for five years, and then got round to it, realized what a difference it could make. I only put that work in now because I can see it's working because I have that track record of it not working. So that makes a lot of sense. Well, to finish up, I've got one final question, if that's okay. And it's on a slightly separate note. I I always ask my guests at the end, what entrepreneur do you admire and why? I don't necessarily have just one. I guess I've always admired those that have a
1: bit more of like a purpose-driven approach to business. So the likes of, you know, like Bill Drayton from Ashoka, for example, like the whole business is set up to help people become the best that they can and like a social entrepreneur. So I've always been like a a fan of those that do business not just for money, but that they can then use the money that they make from running a business and their talent of being an entrepreneur for goods in the world. So, yeah, probably the likes of Bill Drayton and, and those kind of sort of like social entrepreneurs, I really look up to, as they've they've taken a concept, they've made a business out of it, they have made money from it, but equally they're actually making the world a better place. So that's kind of uh, sounds a little bit cringy but they're the kind of entrepreneurs i look at because they're doing stuff beyond just business and i feel like that's what makes you like a really true entrepreneur i think um so yeah someone like that
0: yeah it's a more holistic approach to business i think that's a that's a really wonderful answer well antonio thank you so much for speaking to us today and, and thanks to everyone who's tuned in to listen if you have any questions you can get in touch via this is and ignition.law until next time